Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Paul is the head of Muradi in Singapore. How are you doing, Paul? Good, Michael. How are you doing? Nice I'm doing. I'm doing super. It's great to have you. Look, I just want to throw this out there because we kind of spoke about it a little bit offline, but I do love the fact that you have the Cubs logo as your sort of Skype avatar. And I will yes. say this. We do share that in common a little bit, right? Because my family is from Boston, and Theo Epstein was kind of traded from, you know, the Red Sox, who for 86 years had never won a World Series. And had, we'd lived in kind of infamy for years and then traded Theo to Chicago. So things are going better there, much better, I think. Yes, we ended our infamy uh, last year. Congratulations, by the way. Thanks. One hundred and what seven years uh, of, of pain, um, and, and so that's just a reminder of uh, you know you have to you have to struggle sometimes, and that's what my Cubs logo is. Yeah, and actually, it's a good metaphor, I think, for the rest of life. You know, if you're not struggling and then you end up succeeding, then you really can't appreciate that level of success. But that's a different conversation altogether, I guess. Anyway, yes, yes. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we can move into what you're doing currently. Sure. Okay. Um, I started uh, after college as a, I was in college as a film major, and I made documentary films. And I worked in Washington D.C. for a while um, in news and making documentaries for the government and for the U.S. Congress, actually on science and technology issues. Wow! And one of those trips took me to California and uh, Silicon Valley in '84, '83, '84, a long time ago. Um, and I fell in love with it. I thought I got to come here. This is where I got to be. So the next summer, I, I picked up my everything and, and moved to the Bay Area. And I lived there for basically eight years, making films um, in, in San Francisco, in, in Silicon Valley. I reviewed uh, uh, PCs, like PCAT clones for PC World, if you remember back there. It was like a 20, 20 megabyte hard drive. Right? 20? You know I had a four megabyte hard drive on my desk at Morgan Stanley. That's not a joke either. I had like your toothbrush has more memory than this did, but <laughs> exactly. that was a big deal. Exactly. And they had those little keys on the front so you could lock it up with the front, if you remember that. Um, so I did that, and I worked for Apple, yeah, making films and videos in a couple of companies that weren't around anymore. And I kept getting sent to Asia, and the same thing happened. I got to Asia. I'm like, whoa, I really like this. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. So um, I had a production company in the Bay Area, but I wrote a business plan, my first business plan ever, and raised some money and looked at going to Hong Kong or Singapore to expand. And Singapore government was um, the Economic Development Board, the EDB, was encouraging different kinds of companies to come to Singapore and uh, giving cash and tax breaks. So I accepted, and I've pretty much been in Singapore ever since. You know, the, the successive years, I spent some time in Southeast Asia. I lived in Vietnam for a while, and I traveled around making TV commercials, but Singapore has pretty much been my home since I moved here in the early 90s. So I have to presume that when you first arrived in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley back in what you said, 1984, mm -hmm. it must have been <clears throat> kind of very different than it is today. I'm just curious what the vibe was like back then. You know, you said you really liked it a lot, and I'd just like to know more detail about, like, what was it about San Francisco back then? I was in San Francisco for the first time in 1988, so not that long after that. I didn't live there. I was just there on passing through on vacation. But I'm just curious, what was the vibe like there, and how do you think it's different than today? Well, San Francisco was a pretty wild city back then, um, 1984. It was just pre-AIDS, right? So it right. was kind of still everything, everything goes. Um, so that was the city. Um, and I moved there in October, and October is always the best month there, just weather-wise. So it was spectacular, and blue skies every day, and nice temperatures. And um, so San Francisco itself was happening in the valley. It tended to be um, larger hardware companies, you know, the Omdals and the HP. Well, Apple was there, but it was more like uh, larger computers, you know, mainframes and AS four hundreds and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's what people were selling and and programming to. So. Um, you had large large scale databases. You had large scale computing power. You had some this one kind of wild part of the industry, which was desktop computers, which was just starting out. So you had yes, you had apples, and yes, you know everybody and their brother had a laptop or not a laptop even then. Um, you know, uh, a desktop computer was a big deal. Yep. So everybody was making them, right? And then what was it about Singapore? You know, again, my first time in Singapore was was probably around the same time. 
My first mm-hmm. time in Singapore was the end of 1990, beginning of 1991, and I had been living in Tokyo at the time. And that Singapore, <clears throat> to me, was very different than the Singapore that I see today. And I didn't even yeah. know back then that the government was giving out sort of, I wouldn't say subsidies, but they were encouraging people with tax breaks to come there and, and build businesses. I think Creative Technologies, I think, is the only business name that I can remember from back then that was building things that were manufacturing electronics, right? Right. They were they were a homegrown company that made, well, Sound Blaster, right? Sound they Blaster, made the yeah. Sound Blaster. Um, so Singapore was a lot smaller then. It was um, about 3 million people. Now it's about 6 million people. So, you know, a significant size difference. Um, so there were less cars, less people, less crowds. It was pretty uh, laid back. Um, and it was far away at that point. You know, it was pre-internet. So we forget, like, pre-internet days, how far away things were. And, you know, ordering something, um, like, you know, if you ordered a special kind of aspirin or something like that, or you wanted some cough medicine, you couldn't get it over the counter here. You couldn't get sometimes, you know, uh, even with a prescription. So it was very difficult to get kind of simple things or cheese. There was no place you could buy cheese, really, here. Um, That's all very, very different now. Um, Singapore, at that point, was a manufacturing hub. when I moved here, the second largest employer, I believe, was Seagate, uh, right. the second largest employer after the government. So Seagate made, made their hard drives here. Um, and eventually they moved where it was cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So they moved to Penang and then they moved to, oh, I guess, Thailand and Thailand. Vietnam. Yep. I don't know where they are now, but um, certainly not here because things just got more and more expensive. So um, over those years, more manufacturing came in. Apple had a big plant here. Motorola had a big plant here. Uh, but I got more specialized, and as wages went up, um, the kind of manufacturing became um, became a smaller smaller percentage of what the overall economy was. And that's when the Singapore government started to actively uh, break target and bring in industries, film and television being one, uh, banking eventually, and financial services became one. You know, then later on, the biotech and even movie studios, and you know, they were very successful in doing that, and, and they were very good at doing it. So. Um, once they targeted an industry, they went after um, uh, key key leading companies in that in that particular vertical and tried to encourage them to come set up shocker to employ and train people and bring money into the economy, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, even for those of us that didn't live there, but just that visited there over that period of time, just the <clears throat> the quantum change in just the industries that were there, but also the wealth that was created there over the past sort yeah. of twenty to twenty five years was just incredible to watch. Really incredible exactly. to watch, actually. Yeah, so now it's, you know, um, uh, you know, it's a very modern city. You can get everything with the internet you have here. You got the great airports. You got the great infrastructure. They've done, you know, great things about making it easy to set up companies here and, and even making it easier to become a VC here nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the, the government is very active and forward thinking about those plans. And obviously you're seeing a lot of the results of that now. So how did you first get involved in, sort of the startup space, the tech startup space, and then what led you to join Murad as well? So um, that's, that's like a 15-year story that I'll try to condense into about 30 seconds here. Take as, mu- take uh, as much time, actually, because I'm, I'm honestly really interested, even if we weren't recording. I'm really curious about how that happens. You know, you're there in Singapore. You said you went there to make films. And, you know, mm. in my mind, and you tell me where I'm wrong, but like full, full-length feature films are in a way, each one of those is an individual startup, right? You have an idea. You have to sell that idea to somebody. You have to go out and get that idea funded. And then the execution of that movie is almost as important as the idea around that movie. It's starting to sound really familiar to me. And maybe I'm just shoehorning my... My, my viewpoint into a, another no, industry. I think that's right. Um, but I wasn't doing that kind of film. I was right, doing right, more but still, doc- but even if you're doc- doing a commercial, right, right. It's maybe it's a sl- smaller scale, but still, all those things have to happen. Yes, indeed. You have a lot of moving parts. You have a, a lot of unknowns. Um, uh, filmmaking and television programming, uh, I liken a lot more to um, cooking. I like to cook. And so... Um, a lot of it is preparation, just like cooking, you know, 70, 80% is prep. Um, and the same thing with making films. And then, you know, you have a little bit of activity and you have a little bit of whimsy or magic. And that's what makes good cooking and that's what makes good films or commercials, Absolutely. I believe. So uh, I, I think many of the famous filmmakers that we can name are all pretty good cooks. I think because the process is exactly the same thing, at least in my mind. Yeah, I don't disagree. So then how did you make that transfer or the transition into tech well, and startups? Like, did you see it happening around? I'm really curious. You can tell as much of the stories you'd like. It was. Um, so I was making films here and then um, went back to California for a little while. Um, 
got divorced there and started making working in a company that made kids educational CD-ROMs. So if you remember pre-internet, you know, CD-ROMs, uh, uh, they were a way that the kids learned. They learned to do math and reading and science and these kinds of things. So I produced a couple of those um, uh, in the early days of that and then got recruited to come to Vietnam to start an animation facility for the production of um, uh, kids' educational CD-ROMs. Wow. So I moved, I moved to Hanoi. Um, this was about 80 or 94. Uh, I moved to Hanoi for a little bit and then spent the rest of the time, about a year and a half, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, setting up what became an 80-person animation facility uh, that, that made did the artwork for kids' ed- educational CD-ROMs. Now, back in 1994, if I remember correctly, relations with the United States still has not still had not been normalized, right? Correct. I was there during the before the normalization and, and when it got normalized. Um, and it was it was a very different place. If you know anybody who's been to Vietnam now, I mean, you know, there were no traffic lights. There were um, there were, I was there when the first escalator in Ho Chi Minh City was turned on. Um, you know, there there were no no buildings above six stories really. Um, and now it's you know it's a big modern city with all sorts of stuff happening. But back then it was it was very difficult to do stuff. There were power outages all the time. Um, fun. Yeah. It was definitely fun and interesting place to do business. But it. Um, those days are gone, and you know Vietnam's a very different place now. Do you go back there often? Yeah, I'm there once or twice a year. In fact, I'm going to Hanoi on Monday. Awesome, going to be there a few days. Yeah, so I like it. So, anyways, we made these things, and then um, that company was an American company, and they kind of ran out of money, and so I ran out of job, and eventually came back to Singapore. I worked with what is now CNBC Asia and television. It was called Asia Business News back then. Oh, right. And I ran what was then called multimedia. Um, which was kind of, uh, there was a visionary who was running Asia Business News there, um, at that point, a uh, gentleman named, a Kiwi named, uh, Paul France. And he had this vision for being able to deliver streaming video and, uh, text to your, uh, computer, which was pretty radical back then, because again, no internet. We, yeah, we very radical. Great idea of using a portion of the TV signal called the vertical blanking interval, which is where they put like closed captioning and stuff. Um, putting data through there and having it pop out on your computer. So uh, we came up with this great story and this great product and raised some money. And that was the first time I ever raised money on a venture. Um, you know, we talked to a lot of the old, very old school VCs back then, um, probably pitched 20, 25 of them, and, you know, raised essentially $5 million to get this thing off the ground. That's a lot of money. It was, Yeah, I think it was five. That's um, still a lot of money. Even yeah. today, that's a lot of money, but yeah. even 10 or 15 years ago, that's a ton of money, right? It was good. And then um, the merger happened. So CNBC took over the Dow Jones portion, I believe that's how it worked, um, of what was then Asia Business News, and it became CNBC. So um, I, I was the baby and the bathwater, and we were, we were gone in a matter of weeks. You know, <laughs> I think we all know what that's like. Yes, <laughs> I think everybody's been there. But um, hooked up with some folks here in Singapore who were starting an internet company, and internet was just starting back then, right? Uh, and we, it was called TriCast at the time. And, uh, what we did was we brought, uh, American or Western, uh, media brands, internet media brands to Asia. So we got the contract to bring CNET to Asia. So we brought CNET over and raised some more money and, uh, did a deal with Viacom to bring MTV, uh, online, MTVAsia.com into existence. Uh, we brought E online and then raised some more money and, Kept scaling it and scaling it. And this is with the real go-go days of Internet 1.1. So we went from four of us on the ground to 650 of us on the ground in eight countries in two and a half years. And we went public on NASDAQ uh, in about April 2000, which was not the right time to go public on NASDAQ, but um, <laughs> it, was quite, it was quite the ride. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say, except... But that was part of the whole game, not game, but that was part of the whole experience back then, right? In other words... You basically experienced all the highs of building a company from zero to, you know, pretty substantial operating in multiple countries, but also, you know, raising money, building it out, doing something nobody had done before, and then listing when was probably the worst time in the history of internet companies to list. But still, you survived. That whole experience must teach you so much, particularly when it comes later on in life to, you know, building, mentoring, you know, advising and helping companies build themselves because you've been through all of that at least at some scale right yeah exactly it was hugely helpful and it, it was obviously very interesting i mean you know i'd never done any i'd never set up 
companies in multiple countries. So I helped set up the entities in, you know, Taiwan and India and Japan and, you know, all, all across Asia, but also then, you know, negotiate big deals and, you know, raise tens of millions of dollars in venture funding, which I never before. So I learned, I, that's where I learned that and kind of all on the run and all at the same time. And then, you know, we went public and we were on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs in New York when that happened, which is a very heady experience. And, you know, went down to NASDAQ and you saw your logo flashing, you know, on Times right, Square. That's, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it was very cool. It was very cool. Um, so that soon ended. That it, it, it turns out we went public on the second worst day in the history of NASDAQ. What was it? Um, Do you remember? If you don't remember, it's cool. I just remember like October 19th was, you know, that was well earlier. But I just remember that yeah. day because I was sitting at Morgan Stanley for it. So well, this is April. This is April. And we, we had public on the same day that Krispy Kreme Donuts went public. <laughs> God, I remember that, actually. And, and they went one way and we went the other way. <laughs> it didn't take too long for them to go the other way as well, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but you can still get a Krispy Kreme Donut. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Um, but it was great. It was a great experience. You know, met some great people, learned an awful lot. Um, and it was just like being there at that time was, was super. So came back, did some other kinds of things. Um, uh, work, worked in private equity with, with a Turkish private equity firm for a little while and then started another company in my, in my bedroom, literally in my bedroom that, uh, distributing, uh, mobile games into Southeast Asia. So developers from around the world were trying to, uh, sell into Southeast Asia, and I kind of knew the telco landscape, and um, I knew the developer landscape, so I became kind of a middleman at first, and then um, went from doing wholesale kinds of deals to actually doing, setting up a team and raising money around that, um, to build out our own platform and connect to uh, carriers in Southeast Asia. So at the, it was called Acme Mobile, A-C-M-E, and really towards the, it lasted for seven years, we you know ran for seven years, and we had direct connectivity with Pretty much all of the carriers in Southeast Asia, um, certainly, you know, direct billing with everybody in the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore and Thailand, uh, and then indirect in a couple more countries, but also representing, you know, uh, EA and uh, a number of the big game companies, Glue and, you know, a lot of companies that aren't around anymore, but uh, uh, we, we were doing it both wholesale and both and direct to consumer. And that was that was pretty exciting. Had teams on the ground in Bangkok and Manila, and uh, agents on the ground in KL and uh, and in Jakarta as well, and partners. And then sold that um, uh, to a, a Mexican company called Binbit, and then kind of freelanced for a little while and kicked around in the in the internet space. And uh, uh, eventually worked for a company called MigMe, which is a, a social network yep. uh, in emerging markets. And I did two stints there, but ended up running business development for them, um, which is, you know, a great opportunity to be in emerging markets uh, and doing deals around micropayments and handsets and pre-installs and really a lot of facets of, of what's going on now in, in emerging markets in, in mobile. Yeah, MigMe was actually a really interesting company at the time, no? I mean, there must have been a lot of stuff that you learned there as well. Absolutely. It was really exciting. And um, Foxconn was the big investor in us at the time. So um, got to travel around with some of the Foxconn guys, which means that everybody talks to you. You know, everybody opens the door to, to Foxconn. So sure, sure, sure. it was great. We got we got all of our meetings all the time. Uh, <laughs> and But we did everything from, you know, multi tens of millions of dollars, tens of millions of device pre-installed deals to... Um, you know, early deals with Paytm for payments in, in South Asia and India to doing stuff in, on the ground in Nepal with uh, uh, musicians and artists and filmmakers to, um, you know, a, a variety of different kinds of things. So it was never boring. It was a lot of fun. And I learned a lot and, and saw a lot. So that was that was great. Which now brings me to almost to Burudi. So during that time with Migmi, I started helping. Uh, I volunteered to be a mentor in the Singapore startup ecosystem. So I did some mentoring for Singapore Management University, SMU, SMU. uh, Founder Institute. I did a little work with Golden Gate Ventures, um, but, you know, kind of kicked around how I could help out with different companies. And one of those companies last year was Murudi. And then um, I guess it's time for us to say what Murudi is now. Murudi is the startup accelerator that's backed by Telstra, the Australian telco. Um, And there's five Murudi entities Four of them in, in Australia, and there's one in Southeast Asia, uh, which is us, based here in Singapore. Uh, it's about entering its fifth year. There have been four cohorts out of Sydney, and we just started our third cohort here. 
Uh, we run a six-month program for 10 to 12 startups, the one in Singapore does. Excuse me. Uh, we are vertical agnostic, which means that we pick all sorts of different kinds of companies. Um, Telstra does not dictate to us or ask us to get companies in specific verticals, which I think is great and very yes. enlightening. And we really appreciate that. Um, uh, so we, we can pick the best companies and the best founders. And, and, and hopefully we do. You know, we try to do that. Um, we operate right now with a, what's called a safe note. We invest in a safe note. So in the Singapore entity, the Singapore cohort here uh, receives 75000 Singapore dollar investment on a safe note, which is a simplified agreement for future equity, which means that basically the valuation uh, is determined on your next raise. So we can say, yes, we'll invest at the next raise with a significant 50% discount to that amount. So if your next raise is at $2 million dollars, um, you know, our investment comes in at a million, at a million valuation. Right. And um, is, is there a reason, I mean, we can ask about this later as well, but is there a reason why you guys go with a safe note as opposed to a convertible bond or just as opposed to taking equity early on? Like what's the yeah, philosophy it, around that? It, it, it's a little, we feel like it's a little simpler. Um, and there's no, there's no puts and calls or anything like that. And I mean, literally the, the agreement is five or six pages and it makes it very easy to say yes. Um, so on, on that side, we like it a lot and there's not a lot of, you know, this, and if you're a young company and if you're young, you know, raising money is hard. Is. Raising money is hard for everybody, but it's very hard if you've never done it before. And, you know, all of a sudden you get a 60, 70 page documents and you get all the lawyers in and, you know, that, that takes away from a lot of energy that you should be spending on building your company. So we feel like let's make this founder friendly, number one. Um, and number two, it just makes it easier to say yes to. For them and then for the follow on investors. You know, there's no, there's no renegotiation or this or that or the other thing. So it makes it very straightforward. Um, one of the things that it also does for us is previously, uh, before I, I joined in June of this year, but previously, um, I understand that the investment was $40,000 for 6% of a company. Okay. Right. Which meant that only certain size companies could say yes to a deal like that. Right. You know, if you're already, if you're already, you know, a million dollar valuation or two million dollar valuation company, it doesn't work for you. No. Okay. So what this does now is it allows us to, to take companies at any stage of their maturity. So, you know, very young ones, but also ones that are raising money at multiple million dollar valuations, right? Which is what we've done. So that it really broadens the scope of the kinds of companies you can bring in and therefore, um, makes it a little easier for, well, more interesting for people to mix and understand, get to know one another and get to know, uh, how to make money and how to, how to build companies. So it's pretty interesting. Can you explain a little bit just for people that don't necessarily know, like what is the process that you and the team, I presume there's a few people on the investment committee that are helping you make yes. investment decisions. And mm -hmm. what's the process that you go through? In other words, you know, deal sourcing, there's plenty of ways to source deals, right? And to source deal right. flow. But once you get something that sort of comes across your desk that's at least worth looking at, what's the process that you go through to try to determine whether it's going to sit in a cohort? And do you invest in, and all, I guess the following question is to that is, will you invest in things that you don't necessarily accelerate as well, don't participate in your program? Uh, let's start with the last question first. No, okay. we only invest in companies that, uh, come into a, uh, the Moody D accelerator program. So in this case, it's, you know, 10, 10 companies come in and we invested in the 75,000 at each one of them. Right. The way that we found these companies, um, this was kind of three, three parts to it. We did a road show in starting in June, July, where we went to six countries in Southeast Asia, nine cities. We did 12 live events and probably over the course of that time spoke to maybe 500 entrepreneurs. Um, we did pitches in, we, we told them a little bit about ourselves, had pitch nights, help, you know, give some feedback on their product and their services, whatever they were trying to do. Um, talked some companies into applying, talked some companies out of applying. They, yep. they just weren't they, ready they, or too big. Yeah. yeah generally not ready. Uh, generally young, um, good idea, ambitious, but, but not really ready for the program yet. Uh, from there we got 200 applicants. We have an online, there's an online application. Uh, you can go to muru-d.com. Uh, you can see that it's there for the Sydney cohort still. I guess they're just wrapping up their, their recruiting now. Um, and we narrowed that down to, uh, so 200, 200 companies applied. We narrowed it down to 100. Then we narrowed that down to 50. Uh, and then the, out of the 50, uh, Craig Dixon, the uh, entrepreneur in resident, and I uh, spent time on Skype calls and 
phone calls with each one of the founders um, and talk them through a lot of different questions that we had and, and wanted to see you know how real they were, where the product really is. Um, uh, did they were, were they honest? Could they play well with others? Were they right. serious about you know uh, spending six months in Singapore because that was one of the requirements? Uh, some of the other requirements were that there had to be a product. Uh, it wasn't an idea. It couldn't be an idea on a napkin, a drawing on a napkin. You had to have a product. Uh, the company needed to have some sort of traction, whether it was customers or revenue or hopefully both. Uh, and you needed to have your own tech team so that you can't, you're not outsourcing the, your development. Because as we start to go through our system and our program here, and we're, we're encouraging changes on a, on a weekly, bi-weekly basis, not having your own engineering team makes that impossible. Yeah, I mean, so, outsourcing changes that rapidly is almost impossible, right? Exactly, exactly. So we, we needed to make sure that you were ticking those boxes. Plus, you were um, coachable and willing to learn and willing to try new stuff. Uh, so from those 50, we took 22 in to what we call a uh, uh, boot camp. And we had them here for two days and we introduced them to all of our, to a lot of our mentors and our friendlies, uh, you know, friendly VCs and mentors and alums who've gone through the program. And everybody got probably 15 interviews over the two days. And from there we chose, we chose the winners, you know, the top, top 10 companies that came in. It was really hard. Getting, getting from 22 to 10 was very difficult. Yeah, kind of going from 300 or 500, sorry, down to 50 is probably easier than going from 22 to 10 and not just the mathematics of it, just right. the the psychological part of it. You know, it's like, how do I determine in the last three or four which are the better ones since they're still there? Exactly. And at that point, you know, we'd spent hours with all of the founders. You know, right. we got to know them personally because we, we spoke to them multiple times. We, you know, spent a few days with them in person. Uh, they've pitched, you know, 15 times over – 24 hours to us. We have to make them pretty well. I was going to say. Well. Uh, so, yeah, so we ended up doing that, and um, we're, we're very happy with, with um, the teams that we brought in. Uh, we have 10 of them. Uh, half of them are Singapore companies. Um, we have two from, uh, two from Bangladesh, one from Pakistan, uh, one from Thailand, one from Vietnam, and one from Malaysia. Okay, so, and, it's, so geographically pretty well dispersed. Yes, exactly. And half of the founders are, or half of the companies have female co-founders, awesome. which is also great. Um, it wasn't on our agenda to do that, but we loved that it, it worked out that way. Yeah, boy, it sure doesn't hurt, does it? No. That no. is really super. Sorry, that's something that's actually pretty close to my heart. So the fact that, that I, it actually ended up that way, and it didn't even end that way because you forced it that way. Like, it just, that just happened. It's really great. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And, and so that means the energy. So everybody has to... The companies need to come to Singapore, and at least one of the founders has to be here all the time. Um, we encourage some of the engineers to be here too. So um, that means that any any given day we have 20 to 40 people uh, from the cohort in the office, and the energy is really nice that way. It's uh, Yeah, it's good, a, a good eclectic group of people, right? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. so we're pretty happy with that. And well, We're now into at sixth, sixth week, uh, the six-month program, seventh week, um, and everybody's kind of clicking along and and what we do is we, um, our program is a little different, but then, Tell me. you know, a lot of accelerators are, are, are similar and we, we have some of those things. So what we do is, um, we probably require eight to 10 hours of the cohort's time directly every week. Okay. Out of the four, call it 40 hours. Uh, we do a, a stand up on, on Monday, Monday morning. So kind of an agile stand up where mm-hmm. you, uh, the founders talk about what they did the week before. How, they, how well they did, what their goals were for the coming week, and any sort of asks that they might have. So, you know, one to three minute kind of review, and then we hold their feet to the fire. You know, you're going to plan to do seven meetings or roll out these three features. Oh, there's a thunder. The next, the next week, you know, we say they only got two and you didn't do those things, and so we're, you know, everybody understands, knows what, what you've committed to and what you may have done or may not have done. So I think that's good. Um, Craig then runs one-on-ones with them, with each company, for at least an hour a week, you know, to really work on their product market fit and help them think through questions and problems they may be having. Uh, we bring in mass, we have master classes, so we bring in people from like we just had Boston Consulting Group did a two-hour session on pricing. Uh, we had a gentleman here named Michael Fillet who is a gamification expert, so he did two hours on gamification, three hours on gamification. Uh, so we bring in one to two of those a week. So you get to have the best people talking about the, the, the subjects that you may not know about or may not have the exposure to if you're, you're running a startup. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and that helps. And then we have um, an open house every Friday uh, from five o'clock onwards, where the four of the companies pitch, and they can invite whoever they want. You know, whether it's uh, uh, mentors or whether it's uh, investors or friends or parents, I don't know, relatives, whatever. Uh, and and we we tend to do that. So every Friday night we have something going on here, where the community is always involved and always open and encouraged to come. So what do you, what's it like the first week when they do their first stand up? I presume none of these founders have been through this process or a similar process, right? And that whole concept of standing up in front of people itself is really hard, right? Public speaking is yes. hard, but standing yes. up in front of groups of people, even if they're your cohorts. What's the reaction that you get? Like, can you feel that? And, and can you feel the difference over time? Like the first stand up as opposed to the 20th stand up? Totally. Totally. So the first ones are Monday mornings, uh, where you have one or three minutes to sort of to walk through it. Everybody's very apprehensive because they're, they're unsure of what we're asking of them. Right. They're unsure of who else is in the room. And, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you think everybody else is better than you are. You know, <laughs> Way further, better, right? Further along <laughs> than you are. So you, you, you and, and it's hard for everybody uh, to say what you don't know or or to be able to say that in public. It, it's hard enough speaking in public but saying, I don't know this and I have to find that out and we're doing, doing a crap job on this. That's really hard, especially to strangers. So, but they get better at it and we encourage that. And now it's very open and, you know, people shout out encouragements or give them a hard time or whatever. And it's very collegial and fun and, you know, open that way. It's no less serious but everybody's a lot more chilled about it, relaxed about it, saying, you know what, we screwed up last week. We we said we were going to have ten meetings, we only had one, and and this is why. Or you know that product launch, that feature launch didn't happen because of this. I um, think there's something really important, if you don't mind me interrupting, about. No. <clears throat> so, operating in a vacuum and operating in a group are two completely different experiences. And I don't think a lot of people think when they think about accelerator programs about that idea that every Monday morning you have to stand up in front of other people that aren't on your team and tell mm-hmm. them what you've done right, but more importantly, what you've done wrong or what you promised to accomplish but failed at accomplishing or outperformed even. But this whole idea that you know, even at a startup, it's hard to begin with, but it's doubly hard at the beginning, I think, when you have to expose yourself and, you know, your foibles to people that you don't necessarily know that aren't on your team. And yet, when it's all over, <laughs> you know, it's almost like your first, <laughs> I just remember this, sorry for being so, um, provincial on this, but it's like your bar mitzvah. You know, when you stand up in front of the crowd for the first time and you're really nervous, when you're done, you kind of wish you could do it over again. And yeah. I get yeah. the sense that that's what it's like for most people that end up thriving in that environment. So it's really interesting to me to watch that development, right? But th- that camaraderie and that morale, actually, I think, Maybe one of the most important things that an accelerator provides because otherwise you're just operating in a vacuum with no feedback except internal feedback. And that internal feedback loop can get really dangerous, I think. Yes, yes. I, having done the internal feedback loop methodology myself, um, I, I highly recommend the, the accelerator model uh, much more, much more. But, but what we're seeing here is, you know, uh, one company is really good at marketing but less, less good at, at actually selling where one has really good sales chops but doesn't know anything about, well, knows a little bit about soft, agile software development. So the different companies help each other out. I mean, we're actually getting them speaking to one another, talking to one another, having lunch with one another, just hanging out and saying, here, have you tried this or look at this, and this is what worked for me, and try these things. So we're seeing that happen a lot, um, which is great. I mean, it, that's the thing that warms my heart is we don't have to say Hey guys, talk to each other because they just do. And you know, I see someone with having a problem. I'm going to go help them. You see someone having a problem. You're going to go help them. It's very much a team. And then when people are pitching, when they're actually pitching their companies, uh, which we are kind of asking them to do almost on a weekly basis now, they're getting a heck of a lot better. You know, I mean, they're much, much more confident about it, and you know, trying out new things and trying it in front of people, because um, you know, ultimately at the end of the program. Uh, they emerge with a um, demo day, like most accelerators do, uh, where they present their pitch to a room full of potential investors. Uh, last year we had 70, 70 people, 70 investors um, at our demo day, and we hope to have more this year. Uh, but our companies are always working on their pitch and always you know, honing it and understanding what the feedback loops and what their ask is and how they ask it to different kinds of people. And we also help them... Um, pitch their product to commercial customer, potential customers as well. And that's one thing that uh, Telstra can, helps with quite a bit. We, right. They have a, 
a, a sales team and a BD team who's been awesome. They've just been great in helping to take our companies in in mid cohort or you know right after they graduate to see the Telstra uh, clients. Uh, so they're not selling into Telstra per se generally. Right. Um, they're, they're they're selling to Telstra's clients themselves, and so that's like just a great experience that they can go see. You know, some big, pretty senior people right away as a very young company. And, and some of the companies are getting six-figure deals, and you know, Sing- Singapore Aussie dollar deals out of it within six months of graduating, which is great. I mean, everybody should have that as a startup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was going to be my next question, right? It's like, what you, you do two cohorts a year? No, we do one. It's you do one. Month. So yeah. just six months. The other six months are spent, what I guess, doing that whole process of finding out who's going to be in the cohort. Right. It, it takes a lot so, of time, yeah? Three months is basically doing the the road show, um, and three months is kind of recovering and figuring out what we can do better, and you know, reviewing and going on your vacation, seeing your kids, and all, all that stuff. Um, we we talk about can we speed it up? Can we maybe you know twist it on the clock a little bit? So every I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of thoughts about can that be changed or not? Well, let's get through this one and see see where we are with that. Got it. And what's the ultimate outcome? In other words, if everything goes really well for me and I'm participating in a cohort, when mm-hmm. the six months is over, you know, I, I guess the ultimate outcome is for people to raise money and then maybe to get one commercial deal. But what are you seeing, like, historically? You've been running this program in Australia, what you said, for four or five years? Yeah. You don't have to yeah. give me percentages because maybe that's internal and that's proprietary and that's fair enough. But, like, I guess the real question is what happens to the companies that don't get funded or that don't get a commercial deal? Because I have some more questions around that too, but like, what is that like? Sure. Well, ultimately, ultimately we're a venture fund, just like another, any VC, yep. right? So, um, uh, as you know, with venture, venture investing, not all companies survive, right? That, that just don't work. Right. Will you make it? Will you make an investment in a company that's coming out of one of your cohorts that doesn't necessarily get other external investment? What if there's someone that? What if there's a company that's really great, but other investors just don't get it? I know it's an edge condition, but I'm just curious. Sure. Like, so, so just to clarify, we invest at the beginning. Yep. So the seventy-five thousand goes into the company once they sign. You know, the documentation is okay, and we do all of that. So they get the money more or less up front. We don't do a, as of now. We don't do a follow-on investments. Um, but we encourage our community of angels and the VCs in Southeast Asia to invest in these companies. So some, some are not going to get additional funding. Um, we hope that we have worked closely enough with them and in front of potential investors for long enough that they can clearly articulate what the problem is they're solving and what their solution is and why, why investing in them would be a good idea. Uh, so, so we work, we work on, with them on that as well as you know, how do you pitch to a customer? What, what are you doing? You know, why, if I'm pitching you my my company, why are you going to be interested? in are you the right person? Am I solving the right problem for you? Um, how do I hear something different than what I thought I was I was hearing? Uh, if you have a different kind of problem, how do I pick up on that and and change or not? Uh, that's what we're, we're trying to teach here. So, in a perfect world, the graduates will get funding either during the program or after the, you know soon after the program and achieve a degree of commercial success. Uh, this year, because we're doing the safe note and some of the companies are older and more mature, they already have traction, they already have customers, we're, we hope that with them that we can really um, make that happen faster, bigger, bigger, stronger, better uh, in terms of commercial success. Right. And this is so hard, right? Like even if you have multiple children, you probably know this, you want to treat them all fairly, but you're <laughs> ultimately going to have a favorite or favorites how do you protect yourselves against, like, you can see some companies just massively outperforming, I'm guessing, in a cohort. What is what is that process like? Like, how do you try to protect yourselves against necessarily favoring one over the other? And how do you help the companies that are lagging behind try to catch up? Well, a couple of things. One, this is my first time doing this with, with Weber D. So, um, and, and we're only six weeks in. So, half and half. Yeah, haven't really gotten there yet. <laughs> okay, so, sorry, sorry about that. I'm, I, no, that's okay. Come back in a year. You know, maybe we will. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, you, you try to. Um, each company has its own needs and own asks, so you try to work with them to uh, help them with those and help them identify the key ones so that they can get the hard stuff out of the way sooner and succeed faster. 
right? And that this could be those will be different for every company, pretty much. Surely, so that's what we work hard. And Craig, Craig does a really excellent job of doing that. Can you explain maybe what you think the biggest challenges are for these companies? Right, I know that raising money is and stuff like that, but just in the development, is it going out and getting the first client? Is it understanding how to do the marketing? Is it understanding pricing? You said somebody comes in to do pricing. Each company's different. Each company has its own strengths and weaknesses. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like Marvel Comics, you know, it's like the Justice League of America. <laughs> the Justice League. Every, everybody has their own special superpower, <laughs> but isn't so good with some of the other things. So Fair enough. That's kind of what it's like. I mean, you know, not everybody's good at the same things. Um, and some, some, some come from a marketing background, right? Or some yep. come from a media background or some come from a consult, you know, McKinsey or something like that. So, you know, they all have different skill sets that, that they're applying, but may, may just not be as strong in other things. And do you see them working together with each other? Like if one company figures something out or they have an expertise that the other one doesn't have, do you see them at all, even in the first six weeks yes, working totally. together to help each other out? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and just That's amazingly, nice. I think in the first couple of days we saw it, we were, you know, it warmed, warmed our hearts to see that happen. Yeah. And they all come together in your office, right? So they yes. have space. They all come to your space, right? Yeah. We have a, we have a really nice office in Chinatown in Singapore. Um, Where in Chinatown? It, it's on Amoy Street by Cross Street. Okay. Uh, right near one of the new MRT stops. And it's an entire floor of uh, – there, there are three shop houses. Yep. And we have – the entire floor of one, and we share some of that space with another uh, uh, Telstra company called Uyala. That whole neighborhood's great. Yeah, it's lovely. It's great, and it's really changed a lot actually in the last five years. Definitely has. I had my when I started Acme, I was just a block away from here, and it was um, a quiet little street in Chinatown, and now it's like bars and restaurants and bustling and tourists. It's really, really happening. It's pretty amazing, actually. I mean, I used to stay in a hotel over there. Right off a of cross street, actually, and then over five years, it just got like I originally stayed there was a hundred dollars a night, and now it's five hundred dollars a night or something insane. Yeah, yeah. they renovated it; was just insane. <clears throat> yeah. Um, what do you find? I mean, you have the story that you told before you worked at Murdy was just incredible. I mean, the experience in San Francisco, the moving out to Singapore, just the seeing the development of Singapore, the gaming company, living mm-hmm. in Vietnam, right? Living in all these different places. Do you find yourself referencing your own sort of personal growth and your own experiences when you're out teaching teams, when you're talking to teams? Do you see some of that in them and then try to guide them through without sounding, you know, I know I do the same thing myself. I try not to sound like too parentals may be the wrong word but like i know yeah. everything but just like hey this thing happened to me maybe you're going through the same type of thing story sure sure although um things are very different now also when we yeah. first did asia content tricast asia content there were no accelerators or incubators no you're um, on your own basically you're on your own the venture companies were you know it was ge capital and intel and the banks um they were the big traditional silicon valley back back in companies, you know, had hundreds of million dollars, H and Q, you know, those guys, they were, um, they were corporate VCs who looked at big projects like that. So the internet was, was difficult for them because it was just so different, right? There were no small, there was no angel investing. There were no seed stage investments. Um, we have a lot of that now, obviously. Uh, and we have people experience in, in, in helping companies understand that growth path and how best to raise money at different stages and what that entails. And there are even specialized investors who only do, you know, pre-series A or, you know, angel or this or that. So um, not having any of that growing up in the industry, I can't speak to it too much, but I can speak to having helped companies work in that space and work doing those kinds of things. Um, some of the things I can help with are pitching and getting up in front of people and trying trying not to be scared and listening, learning how to listen, right? Which is probably the hardest thing to do when you're when you're scared yeah. um, or you're at anxious or nervous, right? It's take a breath and and let the other person talk every once in a while. That that that's important. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I try to not teach but sort of tell people is that no individual day is fatal. You know, and, right. until it really is, but you'll know it when it is. And worrying about it like, at the moment is probably not going to be so helpful for you. So this whole sense of like trying to find a middle calmness is actually, for me, ends up being really important. You know, come out of a risk trading background and like if you get nervous, you're dead. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. And, and you know, we were having this discussion yesterday. Um, I was in, in Taiwan at a conference, and um, I was on a panel with a number of VCs, and we were talking about, like, when, when, when do you actually say enough, right? When do you say stop? You right, know? right. When do you uh, give up? When do you give up? And how? Ah, it's hard. It's hard. But it's also part of being an entrepreneur and a founder is that you have to be stubborn, right? Um, that that's what will make you successful. But on the other hand, it could be too much, and you can't you, you can't know when it, it's time to turn it off or just stop, right? So it's a it's a delicate balance there, and and we talk about that a lot. Yeah, I think that's again something really hard to teach, right? It's, and that's why I tell people like no individual day is fatal in the sense that, you know, tomorrow that commercial deal you've been working on for five months because sales cycles are longer than you expect. And maybe that mm -hmm. person that was supposed to make the decision was gone or that position changed. Maybe the new person comes in and says, you're done. Right. And then you have that's a it. deal that you didn't expect and then everything changes. The whole paradigm for your business changes. And yet if you'd given up a week before because of the disappointment or maybe the shame or the fear of, that not coming through, you may not have known. So finding that balance, I think, is really important and very important to teach as well. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> look, I think this has been a really fabulous conversation. We could talk more about like what your investment thesis is. I have my own idea, and I agree with you on and Telstra's view as well, and I give them a lot of credit, actually, for not specifically pointing to a vertical into mm -hmm. which you must invest. A lot of corporate ventures fall into that um, into that trap. You know, if you're a bank, you look at fintech only, or if you're an entertainment company, you only look at, you know, gaming or entertainment. And, you know, you could have Telstra or any of the other telcos that run sort of corporate venture companies say, you know, we only want to invest in things. And I, I've seen actually some of the mobile venture companies say this. The only thing that adds data to, you know, data usage to our mobile system, it's just a yeah. weird way to invest, right? So you, you won't invest in a company that's going to make you $4 billion because it's not you know, super data intensive. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. So I give you guys a lot of kudos for doing that. It makes, it makes more sense, right? Cause then you don't limit yourselves and yet you can't. So I have a thesis, right? I can't be an expert in anything, but I do want the businesses into which I invest to look kind of a certain way, right? You know, to take a fragmented market and kind of build a platform and a moat around that, that idea using technology. It's a little bit general, but I find that it's been very helpful for me in making investment decisions and I don't care what vertical it's in, and I feel like you guys feel the same way as well. But having at least just a basis for a thesis on this makes investing decisions a little bit easier. Sure, new things come up, but I want to have a baseline for what I understand or think I understand. Well, we want to we want to invest in companies um, that that can make a difference. I mean, we're not we're not going after like a, a, a new coffee delivery no. startup. Don't you don't care? another dating dating company no way. um so we're looking at companies that we believe actually can make a difference yep um and certainly in, in, in south and southeast asia there's plenty of opportunities because there's a lot of people and uh, you know a lot of different economic levels uh you know the, the education healthcare, money access to schools access to you know any information i mean there's a sure. uh, hundred different things we could we could talk about so we we tend to focus on companies that do that um but yes i think Telstra, all kudos to them, you know, having that that approach because that's actually where you can make the most difference. And uh, I think also we're starting to see that a lot of corporate acceleration programs that focus on a specific vertical are just not being successful, you know. Um, but in a way, you can't be. I mean, I don't know. I have a view no. on this, but I don't think you can be, frankly. The world is moving too fast for you to focus on like just one tiny little slice. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, and I think some of them are, are, you know, turning off the lights and, you know, changing. And, you know, we've seen a lot of them shut down. So in many ways, we feel like we're, we're sort of accelerator 2.0 here. Well, you know, accelerator 2.0. Yeah. In, in a way, you kind of are, right? Because the market existed for a few years before you guys came in. You looked around. You learned a lot probably from some of the sort of trials and tribulations that some of the other accelerators, accelerators excuse me, went through. And now you're building what you believe is at least a more robust model and a better way to do it. And I also like the fact that you're traveling around to six different countries, nine different, you know, things. And like, that's really important to go out and meet people in their own environment and understand the challenges that they face. One of the things that I've found over the past five or six years is that, you know, a lot of the venture capitalists don't leave Singapore. Mm -hmm. And if you're investing something in Indonesia or in Malaysia or in Vietnam or in the Philippines, in the context of the Singaporean market, you're just going to lose all the time because, it's just so different outside of Singapore and the rest of the region. 
Agreed. Although that's changing to everybody's to everybody's credit here, most people's credit. Um, you're seeing a lot of, a lot of the uh, pre A VCs spend more time outside of Singapore. They than do they now do. for sure, yeah. um, which is great because that's not only that's where the action is, but also you have to understand um, how how the markets work, who the customers are, what the money is, what the uh, the uh, you know how the legal system works, all of those kinds of things. If you want to run a business, so. yeah. I mean, you can't understand the challenge, the day to day challenges of like the output of that business, unless you're in that market at some point in time, it's really important for That's me right. to travel to those places. Yeah, and plus, it, it, I mean, to me, it was a, just sort of a fabulous opportunity. I mean, come on, cool I, mean, I got to talk to 500 <laughs> entrepreneurs on the street in, in <laughs> six countries. You know, that's like not everybody gets to do that. So, no, that's I just amazing. Fascinating. Yeah, it was really eye-opening in many ways. Okay, look, I'll, I'll let it end here, but I think this was really a fabulous discussion, and hopefully. This is not the last time that you and I get a chance to talk. Like I've loved to be able to follow up both online and offline. Sure. But I really want to thank you, Paul, for taking the time out. You know, not just to talk about Muradi, but to talk about all of your experiences leading up to it as well. I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. And is there a way you want to tell people that they can get in touch with you if they need to or if they want to? Sure. Well, first, thank you, Michael, just for the opportunity. I mean, this was really fun and I really enjoyed it. So, and I do hope that, like, you know, let's, let's touch base in six months and see where, you know, where yeah. this is all gone. I mean, this is, this cool is an on- up. I want to do it. Yeah. It's an ongoing adventure. So like tune in, tune in next week. Um, the best way to get me is, uh, Paul at Murud, M-U-R-U hyphen D as in David dot com. Um, or I'm vision thing on Twitter. One word vision thing. Um, and, and just to let people know, so everybody asks, and I never remember to say this, like, what does Muru D mean? I was just about to ask you, but I didn't want to keep going, but please do. So Muru is, uh, from one of the Aboriginal languages. It means path, pathway. And D is digital. When it was first started, most of the investing companies were digital, less, less so now. Um, but I met a guy in Thailand who is Finnish. And he told us that Muru also means honey or sweetheart, kind of in a nice, nice way in Finnish. <laughs> so there you go. You can pick your pick. Exactly. Whichever one works for you best. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Paul, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Cool, Michael. Thank you, too. Talk to you soon. Take care, man. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.